Good evening, everyone. This is Walter Cronkite speaking to you from CBS Television Election Headquarters here in New York City. The big election night, 1952, the year when the United States picks its 35th president. It's 8.30 p.m. on November 4th, 1952, election night in America. Dwight Eisenhower, the revered hero of World War II, is the Republican candidate for president. His Democratic opponent is Illinois Governor Adelaide Stevenson. Everyone thinks Eisenhower will win, but that it'll be a close one. Balmy weather over most of the United States today and a record turnout apparently throughout the United States. The war has only been over for seven years. During the war, the U.S. military invested heavily in new technologies like radar, jet engines, and computers. Now those technologies are finding their way into business and everyday life. Television was around before the war, but only explodes onto the market in the post-war years. About one-third of American households have one. It is a new and fabulous wonder. And the very idea of TV coverage of an election is being tested in front of everyone's eyes. The camera centers on Cronkite. He sits at a long wooden desk. The newsroom is buzzing, packed with men in suits and women in dresses. Right after Cronkite welcomes the audience to election night coverage, he introduces another one of the war's technological wonders, one that most of his viewers have never now seen. Now for uh, perhaps a prediction on how this voting is going, what the vote uh, that is in so far means. Let's turn to that miracle of the modern age, the electronic brain Univac and uh, Charles Collingwood. The camera pans over to reporter Charles Collingwood, square-jawed and slightly balding. He's sitting in front of a large panel, its lights blinking furiously. On top of the panel is a sign that says Remington Rand. To his right is a tall machine the size of a refrigerator, spinning a spool of tape. Next to that is a typewriter wired to the whole contraption. The audience doesn't know it, but everything about this scene is fake. The lights behind the face of this machine are Christmas tree lights set to blink randomly. Yes, the most trusted man in America is pulling one over on the American public. The real computer, called Univac, is housed in Remington Rand's lab 100 miles away in Philadelphia. If the enormous Univac were actually in the newsroom, well, there wouldn't be space for much of anything else. Before the broadcast, James Rand asked CBS to always refer to the Univac as a computer. But Cronkite and Collingwood keep calling it an electric brain, and they feel compelled to explain what it's doing in their newsroom. They know this whole setup is confounding, so assurances are in order. This is not a joke or a trick. It's an experiment. We think it's going to work. We don't know. We hope it'll work. At any rate, for the last six weeks or so, some 25 mathematicians, statisticians, and researchers, including some of the country's best mathematical brains, have been working on the problem which we've given to this electronic brain to try to solve for us tonight. Collingwood's efforts to make the Univac relatable get almost silly. As he's pointing out the features of the computer, he turns to the typewriter. Can you say something, Univac? Have you got anything to say to the television audience? The camera moves in close to the typewriter. The keys are motionless. The page is blank. Collingwood gets pouty and calls the machine impolite. Collingwood tells viewers how the Univac works. It calculates 2,000 additions each second. It can compare early incoming results to past elections to predict the winner. Around the country, millions turn their dials to CBS to see what this computer can do. But one of those viewers at his home in New Canaan, Connecticut, 
is Thomas Watson Sr., the aging chief executive of IBM. He is furious, and for the first time in a long time, scared. This is Business Wars. I'm David Brown. With so much information available at our fingertips today, it's hard to imagine a time when we didn't have computers to digest millions of data points in milliseconds. To find the best price shoes, zoom in from overhead on a neighbor's house, or even find love. In fact, in 1952, CBS thought it would be so hard for Americans to wrap their heads around this new marvel that seasoned newsmen resorted to, well, fake news to make the public believe the very idea of this. They built a pretend computer to front for the real one. The UNIVAC wouldn't bring us into the computer age with warp speed, mind you, but it did open us up to the notion of computing power, of creating whole new industries like microchips and software and shrinking the office-sized computers to something more personal. Our new six-part series is going to look at the UNIVAC, a new product that wasn't just evolutionary, it was revolutionary. And the behind-the-scenes war between its creator, Remington Rand, and its biggest competitor, a company called International Business Machines. You know them today as IBM. This is Episode 1, The Electronic Brain. And you can listen to the first four episodes of this new series ad-free right now by subscribing to Wondery Plus. IBM CEO Thomas Watson, then 78 years old, tuned into CBS that election night in 1952 out of political interest. And maybe it was also personal. He had befriended Eisenhower after the war and convinced the retired general to take the post of president of Columbia University, where Watson long served on the board. But during Collingwood's description of the UNIVAC, Watson fixates on the TV for a different reason. He thought he had defeated James Rand decades before, but somehow Rand that's the Rand of Remington Rand, has engineered a technology and public relations coup. Remington Rand's UNIVAC is right there, on TV in front of 15 million people. The embellished UNIVAC makes Watson's IBM tabulating machine look like a creaky old antique. Watson, at an age when his jowls sag and his ulcers burn constantly, reigns as IBM's builder and monarch. He's been running the company for nearly 40 years, going back to 1914, when he was brought in by investors to guide a tiny dysfunctional business called Computing Tabulating Recording Company, or CTR. It was the best job Watson could get at the time. As a younger man, he'd had a spectacular career as a top executive at National Cash Register in Dayton, Ohio. That's NCR for short. But that career came crashing down when the U.S. government sued NCR for criminal antitrust in 1912 and convicted Watson of being a monopolist. It was a stain Watson felt he could never quite erase. The CTR company that Watson inherited made the world's first tabulating machines. These mechanical devices could add and sort numbers far faster than a room full of humans, 
They stored data on rectangular cards punched with holes, later known as punch cards. Watson recognized the value in tabulating machines and in the new field of data processing. By the late 1920s, he changed the company name to International Business Machines and built it into the world's first high-growth superstar tech company. One of his few challengers had been James Rand, who owned a company called Powers Tabulating Machine Company. IBM made sure it cornered patents on tabulating machines and then crippled Rand by charging exorbitant licensing fees. Rand's company shriveled. For that, Rand would never forgive Watson. By election night in 1952, Watson is certainly aware of a new technology for data processing. IBM's machines had always worked using electromechanical switches, which were reliable but slow. During World War II, the government funded research into the emerging field of electronics. Scientists found that vacuum tubes, similar to those that powered radios, could be made to switch on and off at super high speeds. That meant the tubes could be made to do the work of IBM's mechanical switches, but much faster and with no moving parts. Watson at first learned about the technology during the war, but considered it unreliable. Still does, even in 1952. The tubes burn out, they can behave erratically. In fact, Watson is certain that no corporation would want to put its critical functions on a bulky electronic computer, at least not yet. So IBM builds its own electronic computer, but it's in a lab, and the company considers it an experiment, a prototype. There are plans in the works to unveil it soon. Watson figures he has some time. But seeing Rand's Univac on TV gives him pause. The best he can hope for is that the Univac screws up live on the air, making Rand look like a charlatan. That would make it easy for Watson in his last act at IBM to unveil his version and send Rand into oblivion for good. Approaching 10.30 p.m., there's not a lot of conclusive election news coming from the CBS newsroom. People are counting paper ballots by hand. The process is slow. Some states have reported results, and so far, Stevenson is ahead in the electoral college count, while Eisenhower leads the popular vote. To gin up some excitement, the camera turns to Collingwood still sitting at the Univac. He refers to the machine as if it's a sentient being. Lowell, do you mind sitting down just a minute? We've, uh, we're talking about old Univac here. And as I was saying, that as a great believer in the machine, we're having a little bit of trouble with Univac. It seems that he's rebelling against the human element. Uh, it, we fed him some figures which were a uh, little out of the, the line of the sort of thing that he'd been expecting. And so Univac came up and said he just wouldn't work under these conditions. Collingwood is being cagey here. The real machine, whirring away back in Philadelphia, had taken in early results. Its calculations predict that Eisenhower will win by a landslide, but Univac's calculations didn't match pollsters' pre-election predictions of a close election. And it didn't match the expectations of the venerable CBS journalists and executives. So the humans at CBS refused to air Univac's forecast. The Philadelphia team is panicking. They've assembled the star pioneers of electronic computing, including J. Presper Eckert and John Mockley, who during the war got credit for inventing the very first electronic computer dubbed ENIAC. 
Grace Hopper, a pioneering computer programmer, is on the election night team, furiously trying to understand what's gone wrong. James Rand is not in the room, but his home glued to the CBS broadcast on his TV. In Connecticut, Watson, fearing for IBM's reputation, stares at the screen, hoping UNIVAC goes up in smoke. The UNIVAC team in Philly hastily changes some figures and tries the program again. This time, it comes out with a prediction the CBS team can live with. Collingwood goes on the air to report a new prediction showing a close win for Eisenhower. In other words, it looks as though Eisenhower is going to get it as far as UNIVAC is concerned. Now back to Walter Cronkite. The camera rolls back to Cronkite at his anchor desk. And uh, that's the prediction from UNIVAC, the electronic brain. No one in the newsroom yet understands how the UNIVAC has been compromised. The new prediction is dead wrong. James Rand bet everything on the election night broadcast. He watches his TV, knowing the outcome over the next few hours will decide his future. Either UNIVAC will triumphantly win the public's adulation, or Rand and his company will become the punchline of jokes about the stupidity of electronic brains. Rand is 66 years old, more than a decade younger than Watson. He's stocky, intense, and sophisticated, brandishing his Harvard education whenever convenient. He likes to race speedboats. In the early 20th century, Rand founded and presided over Rand Cardex, one of the most successful office products companies in the U.S. In 1927, seeking to move up to more compelling and pricey products, Rand bought two companies. One was Powers Tabulating Machine, the only real competitor to IBM's much more established tabulating machine business. The other was Remington Typewriter, maker of the first electric typewriters. James Rand renamed his parent company Remington Rand. Rand is no angel. Throughout the 1930s, he got into legal trouble. The Securities and Exchange Commission charged him twice with stock manipulation. He got hauled before a grand jury for his role in trying to break a strike at Remington Rand. He was never found guilty of any of the charges. The demands of World War II allowed Rand to transform Remington Rand into a major defense contractor. Not long after the war, he scooped up ENIAC builders Eckerd and Mockley, who'd been trying to build and market their own electronic computers but were going bankrupt. The deal felt even better to Rand because IBM had rejected a deal with him, writing them off as eccentric dreamers. Watson and Rand used their relative strengths market share versus engineering supremacy, to bleed each other. But it's Rand who grasps how to harness the power of a new medium. Television. Television is taking the country by storm. Only two years before, in 1950, about 10% of homes had a TV. A comedian would change that dramatically. Fred Mert celebrate their 25th wedding anniversary. That's right. Gee, that's such a long time. 25 years. Yeah. 25 years. <laughs> Sounds longer when you say it. I Love Lucy debuted in 1951. Reason enough for many families to buy a TV. The number of homes with TVs triples. So, yes, 
the ditzy redhead had something to do with a large audience on election night. That night, other than the fake Univac, everything else in the CBS newsroom is low-tech. Fourteen teletype machines chatter in the background, bringing the latest reports from election commissioners. A huge wall map keeps track of electoral college results. As vote tallies come in, reporters stick states on the map by hand, striped if they go Republican, solid if they go Democrat. TV broadcasters can't use colors like red and blue when TVs are only black and white. Just after 11.30 that night, Walter Cronkite turns to the venerable Edward R. Murrow for an update. Murrow, in a dark suit, reads off of papers on his desk in his deep, somber voice. He says he is reasonably certain that this election is over and that Eisenhower will come out the winner. He then throws the newscast back to Cronkite, who brings in Univac for the first time in more than an hour. And now Univac, Univac, our electronic brain, which a moment ago still thought there was a a 7 to 8 chance for Governor Stevenson, says that the chances are 100 to 1 in favor of General Eisenhower. I might note that Univac is running a few moments behind Ed Murrow, however. Ed Murrow, some 15 or 20 minutes ago, said uh, he thought it was in the bag for General Eisenhower. Cronkite's snarky comment is terribly unfair. In fact, that was exactly the result Univac had predicted hours earlier and that CBS had rejected and refused to air. The Univac team in Philadelphia, believing they must have made a mistake, had recalculated their election forecast based on numbers that turned out to be wrong. When the team realized the error and re-ran the program with the correct figures, the projections the machine spit out were in line with its earliest forecast of an Eisenhower win by a landslide. At midnight, the results become obvious. Eisenhower is up by 600,000 in the popular vote and has secured 408 electoral votes to Stevenson's 123. Shortly after midnight, CBS decides to come clean about the Univac. Charles Collingwood announces that CBS has a camera in the Philadelphia lab of Remington Rand and will get an explanation from Charles Draper, who runs Remington Rand's research lab. Art, uh, what happened there when we came out with that funny prediction? Draper, in his 50s, is wearing a light suit, his hair must. Sitting in front of the real Univac, he seems bemused as he speaks. Well... We had a lot of troubles tonight. Strangely enough, they were all human and not the machine. The humans, Draper says, refused to believe that Univac could have been right. So we asked Univac to forget a lot of the trend information that we had put into it, assuming that that was wrong. So Univac worked on a smaller margin of knowledge. This won't give a wrong answer that it'll throw the odds to the extent that you saw. As the prediction, as more votes came in, the odds came back, and it was obviously evident that we should have had nerve enough to believe the machine in the first place. It was right. We were wrong. Next year, we'll believe it. The broadcast shifts back to the New York newsroom, which gets word that Adlai Stevenson is preparing to concede the election. It's hard to overestimate the impact of this moment on the American public. To this point, electronic computers have been alien things to the vast majority of people. At most, they were seen as instruments of science, 
a way to calculate the movement of planets or solve some math equation that has little bearing on anyone's day-to-day life. As November 4, 1952 turns into November 5, 1952, people get it. Electronic computers are an exciting new invention that can do things never before possible. And they are very, very real. However, starting this minute, these wondrous machines are not known as electronic computers or electric brains. Thanks to its TV star turn, the conversation is now about a new noun, Univax. In one swift public relations victory, the underdog Remington Rand defines a new generation of technology in its own image. James Rand is elated. After decades of trying, he finally bests Thomas Watson. In his bedroom in Connecticut, Thomas Watson is severely shaken. For the first time, he thinks maybe he's too old to be in charge of IBM. He's been bringing along his son, Thomas Watson Jr., who's been pushing his father hard to get IBM into electronics. The elder Watson has been holding back the ambitions of his son and younger electronics engineers he'd hired. Lying in bed, Watson thinks about unleashing IBM's electronics believers and giving them his full backing. IBM has 45,000 people and nearly half a billion dollars in annual revenue. By comparison, Remington Rand is a pipsqueak. Watson thinks to himself, so, James Rand wants a computer war? Well, Rand is going to get one. On the next episode, an overconfident Watson Sr. fumbles a unique opportunity to secure IBM's future, but his competitor snaps up that opportunity and scores big. This is the first in the series of The First Computer War. New episodes of Business Wars come out every Tuesday and Thursday. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Business Wars. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, iHeartRadio, Wondery.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll also see some offers from our sponsors like Squarespace. To make your website, go to squarespace.com and enter code BW at checkout. Please support our show by supporting them. If you want to hear more of the first Computer War series right away, you can get the first four episodes of the series ad-free before they're released anywhere else by subscribing now to Wondery Plus. Go to Wondery.com slash plus. That's P-L-U-S. You'll also get exclusive access to other Wondery shows in addition to extra content and exclusive perks. Another way to support us is to answer a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. And if there are some business war stories you'd like to hear, well, by all means, let us know. I'm your host, David Brown. Kevin Maney wrote this story. He's the author of The Maverick and His Machine, Thomas Watson Sr. and the Making of IBM. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Our show's executive producer is Marshall Louie, and it was created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering.